Take a network break. Help yourself to a virtual donor as we peruse this week's IT news. We're talking about new products from Aruba, Arista, and Palo Alto Networks. There's problems at SunGuard, an HP acquisition, and more. Sponsored today by Linode. Cut your cloud bills in half with Linode's Linux virtual machines. You can develop, deploy, and scale your applications faster and easier. And Network Break listeners can get started on Linode today with $100 in free credit. You can find all the details at linode.com slash networkbreak. It runs on Linux. It runs on Linode. Stay tuned after the news. We've got a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Aurelian, formerly known as Telia Carrier, about how Aurelian is driving the use of disaggregated optical networking gear and what that means for customers. All right, let's dive into the news. First, Aruba Networks, they made a couple of big announcements at its Aruba Atmosphere 2022 event, including Aruba Central Net Conductor, which aims to simplify creating an overlay network, and new APs with onboard GPS for more precise location services. Uh, I think, Greg, we should start with Net Conductor. Yeah, Net Conductor, I've got to say, it's a little confusing. I, I found the announcement a little confusing to unpick. I think uh, the best way I can describe it is that it's a cloud-hosted network orchestration solution but it seems to me like this is the first version of the product. So it's only focused on policy orchestration, network access control, policy enforcement, and client profiler and threat announcement. So basically micro-segmentation. It looks a little bit like ClearPass, just cloud-hosted, but it doesn't seem to be, if that makes sense. Yeah, so the way I understand it is it's a software application running on Aruba Central, which is Aruba's big network management and operations platform. And basically it's supposed to let you deploy an overlay network using a combination of eVPN and VXLAN, um, primarily in your campus uh, at the start for things like you said, uh, segmentation, policy mm. enforcement, uh, security enforcement. Yeah, but yeah, they're doing but it, it via these this overlay. Mm -hmm. They talk a lot of it at edge to the cloud. And I think the piece that might be missing here is the cloud piece, but I suspect that it's coming, if that makes sense. So this is very, this version of the product, or at least all the documentation I'm reading says it's all about you know, configuring the WAN edge with, you know, your border routers and your, you know, so forth. This is mm -hmm. not SD-WAN, by the way. This is right. straight up, yeah, and branch networking and so forth. And it uses a cloud software tool to bring together a bunch of micro-segmentation. It, it sort of feels incomplete. So they talk about unified network overlay, automated configuration and policy propagation. It's got global scale based on widely adopted protocols, and it's got all of the illities, you know, automation, automation, security, agility, <laughs> observability, you know, all those sorts of things. Visibility, et cetera, yes. Yeah, it's uh -huh. got all those sorts of things built in. Um, so it's definitely worth having a look at in terms of cloud-hosted orchestration of your micro-segmentation, but it seems to overlap with a lot of other stuff that they've already got, like what's Aruba ClearPass doing? You know, what have we seen with other Aruba orchestration tools that do it on-prem? Where does it fit into the Wi-Fi? And it's not so clear. It sort of implies that they're talking to, they make a point of saying, we don't talk to any of our other SDN tools. And that's sort of like then, well, why would I have the other SDN tools? Or if I've got those other SDN tools, what happens then? I don't know. And that wasn't clear to me. I, I think what I understood is that they're taking elements of ClearPass, like the device identification capabilities, and just shoving that right into Aruba Central. And over mm. time, Aruba Central is going to be the Uber controller for everything. Mm. Um, but they're doing it piece by piece. Uh, the net conductor thing, it's about if you want to get this uh, overlay capability in your campus, we make it easier with net conductor to do, you know, to automate all of the configuration of the switches instead of you having to go in hand by hand and, and mm. uh, configure them all. So it's that automation element. And then you get the benefits of that segmentation capability, which integrates with that ClearPass capability in Aruba mm -hmm. Central. So yeah, there are a lot of moving pieces here. 
Yeah, so this seems to be a part of Aruba Central. Aruba Central can be deployed on-premise or on the cloud. Or so in maybe the cloud, this yes. can, Yeah, maybe this can be both as well. Um, just, but they talk. Yeah, about, I think so. Yeah, and they're also there. I think the long-term plan is to chase after folks like Juniper um, by having the cloud element where they can collect lots and lots of data and then do AI ML and that analytics on top of it to give you more insight into operations. Yeah, uh, that's also part of the long-term plan if you're using Aruba Central in the cloud. Not on yeah, take your data and then sell it back to you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> except we call it AI and ML to take meaning out of it, which is valuable. I mean, it is. A it service. is. It's not, it it is. is. You know, it's I'm a, just it's a little a bit cynical about it. So that sort of thing. Sometimes I get a little. Yes. You know, like they take all your data and then give it back to you. It sort of feels a little wrong sometimes until you think about it the right way. I think this is interesting in the sense that we've seen Aruba sort of stay traditionally with the on-prem for a bit longer than the other vendors. And now we're seeing them switch over. I think there's going to be a period of confusion as they move to this, you know, embracing the multifunction, multi-cloud on, off-prem, bringing it all together. I think we saw the same thing with Arista when it moved to add campus and Wi-Fi. And there mm -hmm. was this period of confusion as bits and pieces, you know, then they acquired Big Switch and then they... Do you know, you know, all those pieces took a while to settle out, I think. Yeah, yeah. To my mind, I, I feel like Aruba is beginning to position itself against something like Cisco SD Access, which is a campus product, again, mm -hmm. meant to create an overlay for you so you can do, you know, security, micro-segmentation, policy enforcement. This is Aruba's answer to that, um, doing it in a slightly different way because I think SD Access is using Lisp, whereas they're focusing on EVPN and VXLAN. Yeah, well, it is true that uh, one of the reasons that the the Cisco was the first to get to, to SD Campus, and they made a lot of money by moving quickly with its SD Campus strategy and finding the, you know, using Lisp and then orchestrating Lisp and then adding security, and they got a lot of traction. And the share market particularly noted that Cisco was getting a lot of revenue out of the campus. And I think that's why we've seen Aruba and Arista and mm -hmm. Juniper, you know, rush to get products out into this space and also Extreme to a lesser extent. Um, because they could see that Cisco was getting a toehold here, revving right. the campus networks that were old and tired and getting customers to upgrade to this new um, sort of software defined, but also include security and access control. And, mm -hmm. you know, so, you know, all of the NAC tooling that you wanted. And of course, once a customer's gone down that path, they're not switching away. They're locked into that strategy for a very long period of time. And there's big money on offer. Uh, and so I think this is that, this is that following that campus strategy that Cisco actually got out in front of. Yes. Uh, and I will note that they are using VXLAN and EVPN, which are standards, but at the moment uh, you can only use this with Aruba switches. So Yes. And that would be fine. I think ultimately it comes down to this is, like I said before, I think this feels like a version one or maybe a version 08, you know, mm -hmm. 0.8 early, early release, get customers interested. Um, so I'd expect maybe it'll take a while longer before we see the full story come together. I think the other thing is we've, we're seeing Arista start to try to move into the data center on the switching side. And so they'll be able to tell a unified networking story because it's all going to be the fabric of EVPN and VXLAN mm. as opposed to if you're going Cisco uh, with ACI, it's one thing with uh, SD access, it's another yeah. set of protocols and so on. So this is that, that unified uh, Yeah, well, they did that Ruby Atmosphere. They did their keynotes this week and they, put, they spent more time putting Pensando on stage than they did Aruba. Uh, you know, if I think I, if I count the minutes I that, Pensando, that yes. they talked about Pensando, um, and I asked a, an exec during a briefing, you know, is Pensando, and it does appear that HP realizes that its data center strategy is lack something. And that at this point in time, they see Pensando with its DPU SDN type thing. And 
um, I'm not convinced that that's the way forward. You know, we've seen other approaches like Pluribus or what uh, Juniper did with Abstra. Cisco, of course, has ACI and Data Center Network Manager. It's got two different products in the same space. And it's not clear that, uh, you know, where the market wants to be. So I wonder if Aruba feels like they need to do something in the data center and they know that they're missing a trick because if you don't have the data center, then you don't have, you know, the whole network strategy put together. Right. And also HPE, which owns Aruba, is also an investor in Pensando. So there is uh, an element of wanting yeah. to, I guess. <laughs> yeah, but they don't own money. it. It was very strange to see a company that is not part of HPE on stage taking up the bulk of the time. Yeah, um, for the day just, one keynote, for sure. It was yeah. an odd choice to sort of, you know, hi, this is the Aruba conference, but we're going to put one of our, you know, a startup that we have a small investment in on stage for the bulk of it. Why not talk about your great Aruba products that everybody knows, you know, seemed odd to me, that part yeah. of it. But uh, they also talked about uh, one feature that came out of the keynotes was the announcement of uh, GPS features into their APs. Yeah, they're adding uh, GPS devices right into their Wi-Fi 6E access points. And the idea is to get you more accurate location services. Aruba says you can get uh, accuracy down to one meter if you're using APs with the onboard GPS. And this makes sense because uh, a lot of people have APs all over the place, but you don't actually know where they are. And up until now, they've tried to do various tools about triangulation from signal right. strength and you know mm -hmm. sending out discovery frames over IEEE and all that sort of stuff. And... Um, the realization is why not just put a GPS in? And it, at the end of the day, we put GPSs in smartphones. How hard can it be to put one in an AP, right? Sure. Yep. So it feels like finally, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Uh, but I think the second part about it is they actually announced an open locate, which is a cooperative standard uh, 802.11MC, I think is part of it. And they're trying to get other vendors to come together to agree on able to share this data. So you can actually have Wi-Fi APs all over the place, all of the wireless visibility tools that you have can access the APIs and they can all come together around a GPS-led location. And keep in mind that these things can actually now create maps because Wi-Fi can actually locate walls and all those sorts of things. So if you have an absolute mm -hmm. location for your AP, not only can you find it, so if it gets boxed up behind a, you know, somebody changes the room around and puts a false ceiling in or a false wall, you right. know, put some plasterboard over a wall, the AP still works, but you can't see it to, you know, <laughs> take <go>. it down. <laughs> uh, having a GPS location is much more, is very useful, especially when yep. you're highly accurate. So there's a whole lot of capabilities there, and it's good to see Aruba leading with this. Yeah, and um, obviously there are other use cases for more precise location tracking, like wayfinding in large venues, inventory tracking, and of course, snooping on customers as they meander through a location. <laughs> Instead of trying to track, you know, triangulate Bluetooth. Right. right. I think they all I think they all liked the Bluetooth because it meant you had to double up the number of base stations to try and do the triangulation. <laughs> but I think they've worked out that ultimately nobody's happy with this so far. So. Yes. GPS. All right, links in the show notes if you want to know more, we'll move on. Arista, they're launching new switches, APs, and a firewall that targets what Arista calls the commercial market. This is organizations between 25 and 1,000 employees, so sort of outside of their typical enterprise market. Uh, Aruba is hoping to serve this market via the channel. Speaking of the campus, Arista is pushing out more of its campus. It calls it its Cognitive Unified Edge, trademark. I'm not allowed to say that without <laughs> saying the trademark. I like to make fun of Arista's you know, desire to make up random names for its products and treat them, trademark them and say that our products are different because they've got a fancy name. So the CUE, which is their Cognitive Unified Edge, is Arista's sort of assault on the campus market. Um, not quite the same. It's a little bit different in the sense that they know that they're sort of coming from behind and they have simpler products and they're still building up their portfolio. Arista rarely gets out ahead of the market. It always 
in my opinion, tends to follow along right in the safe middle, producing, you know, products right where yes. the market is not ahead of the market. They're not trying to pretend that they're innovating. Uh, they do mention the word innovation a lot like Cisco does, but the same sort of thing. Um, and I think here the unique part is that they're sort of realizing that the market is moving forward and they're starting to focus on the day two. So up until now, they've said like our products are stable, our products are great. Yeah, you know, EOS is the main feature. Now what they're actually leaning into is operations and the software defined part. Did you get a different pitch? Uh, my take is that Arista is now uh, heavily pursuing branch and uh, um, remote locations, which they haven't so much focused on. It's been more of the enterprise data center and a little bit of the mm -hmm. campus. Now they are fully going after an, a new market segment, that commercial market they're talking about, but also mm -hmm. building products for branch and remote locations. So they've got, you know, a new switch, which they call a micro wedge appliance. It's essentially a switch where you can plug in, you know, uh, MPLS uh, internet and LTE to to um, get connectivity to a branch location. Mm -hmm. The firewall is new. This is something that Arista hasn't done before. Uh, they're mm. leveraging it, you know, for this initial entry into this commercial market. But I'm curious to see if we see the firewall show up uh, in other parts of its portfolio. Well, I think the firewall is interesting. I've always believed that firewalls aren't particularly special, and I've never understood why uh, we haven't seen networking companies just have firewalls as a standard feature. Remember, there's no standard for a firewall, and there's no mystical talent in a firewall, even a next generation firewall these days doesn't particularly have any functions that can't be easily done by anybody with sufficient commitment. Um, the only challenge is convincing customers that you are a security company. I think Arista's got a good stab at that. Um, and so it makes sense. Why uh, Why would you buy, you know, your networking from one company and your firewalls from another? At this point, you know, everybody's doing most of their security outside of the firewall. So you're doing it at the NAC or the Zero Trust or in the threat detection systems that you put in place. And they're in the network and the purpose of a firewall in terms of a choke point and is going away. So I don't, I think this makes sense and probably viable. I, I'd love to hear anybody who thinks that Arista's firewall is not up to spec. Yeah. So apparently this firewall is coming from an acquisition. I got a briefing on it, but they weren't uh, ready to give details yet. So mm -hmm. uh, there'll be more to come on that, but it is what they're calling a next gen firewall. So they can do things at L7 or at the application layer got IPS, it's got virus and threat protection, web filtering, and an IPsec VPN. Yeah. So the firewall's not all that serious. It's everything that goes around it that makes it a security strategy. We call it a firewall, but it's really all the other things you just mentioned, zero trust and all that. Yeah. I think it makes sense. I would not want to buy my network from this company and this company and this company and then have to assemble the pieces together in the modern era. You know, you end up with these SDN networking going you know, trying to get them to come much easier if they're all unified into one thing, one console, I think. Sure. And, you, you know, you're leaving money on the table if you're selling switches and routers to a customer, but the, they're getting their firewall from someone else. And obviously Arista's main mm -hmm. competitors also have firewalls in their catalog. So Arista, I'm surprised, is taking this long to get there, but here they are. Yeah. Well, look at Fortinet and Palo Alto, huge businesses. Huge. Like Fortinet, for example, is a $50 billion company, several times the size of Arista mm -hmm. and built on the back of firewalls and SD-WAN, you know? Right. I think also what we're going to see here is over time, Arista is going to extend the capabilities of these branch devices to get into SD-WAN. So they'll be competitive in the SD-WAN space, which is also an area they haven't played in yet. So I'm, mm. I think this is sort of this, and they didn't say we're doing SD-WAN, but that's my assumption that that's where they'll be developing this product because it seems logical. If you've got you know, a device doing networking at the branch location, why not build in SD-WAN capabilities at this point? But as we have mentioned, Arista tends to take their time about branching into new markets. Yeah. So. And everybody else did the same thing. They went to the campus, the corporate campus, and then they went mm -hmm. to the branch, the yep. branch land, 
and then they came to the SD-WAN last. We've seen that repeatedly. Like that was a Ruby's pathway forward, Extreme's pathway forward, and Juniper's pathway forward. You know, obviously Juniper acquired Mist AI, did the branch, and then, you know, went into the corporate campus, revitalized its portfolio around the corporate campus, and then acquired uh, 128 Technology for SD-WAN to replace yep. their previous attempts at it. And so, and then finished it off with Appster in the data center. So that makes sense. Yeah. So a couple more points here. Um, all the devices that we're talking about, they can be managed from a lightweight version of Cloud Vision. That's Arista's management software. It's got a limited feature set, but the idea is that if customers grow into Arista's data center switches and other products, then they can just you know, get a license upgrade to get the full-blown version of Cloud Vision. So that they're still uh, tying this into the, back to their, their Cloud Vision management software. Uh, one more thing, Arista's calling this an edge as a service offering, which to me is a misnomer. It's not a service. You have to run it yourself. Arista isn't running it for you. And I feel like I'm seeing more and more network vendors call things uh, as a service that are not what I would define as a service. And I don't know why this is happening. It's probably, yeah, it's probably as a service because it's got subscription licensing where you rent it. So. I guess. That's still, <laughs> yeah. That would be my gamble. Yeah. Yeah. That's what yeah. makes it, you know, as a service is when you pay a subscription license. Uh, I disagree, but I guess maybe that's... Yes, yeah, sorry. Yeah. I was trying to take... Yeah, I know. Uh, you're, <laughs> yes, you're taking their point. Yeah, yes. Yeah. yeah. My. All right. Uh, links in the show notes. If you want to read more, we'll move on. Palo Alto, they've announced the cloud next-gen firewall for AWS. It aims to protect traffic within and between AWS VPCs, and it's currently available in two regions, uh, US East 1 and US West 1. Um, so this is just... It's, a, it's your cloud, it's your next-gen firewall from Palo Alto that you'd expect. The difference is that this new offering means uh, instead of running a VM in AWS, Palo Alto is going to manage the underlying AWS infrastructure scaling and software updates for you. Uh, if you're just running uh, Palo Alto on a VM in the public cloud, you're responsible for spinning up uh, all the underlying resources and taking care of them. Yeah, I think the business angle here is that putting the Palo Alto firewall into the AWS marketplace opens up more market, so more customers to them. There's mm -hmm. a, a fairly substantial group of people who use AWS and they just generally prefer to use the marketplace so that they can provision. They don't have to go into writing provisioning tools that actually let you, you know, deploy a firewall, instantiate a VM, get the firewall on, set up all the networking. It's a lot easier if you can just go into the marketplace and go click and bang and away it goes sort of thing. Yes. So yep. this feels like a match. If you follow that chain of logic and you agree with that, then that feels like what's happening here, just growing the market to meet uh, a place where customers are. And of course, for a lot of customers, uh, they might want to put a Palo Alto firewall in front of something, but not have to think about a VM. They talk a lot about the cloud means that you don't have to do the work. Well, you know, this puts you some way down the path, as you said, when you click it from the marketplace, you pay for it by the hour, et cetera, et cetera. And you don't have to worry about the VMs and everything. Yep. Right. Uh, I will note that at present, you cannot manage these firewalls as part of Palo Alto's panorama management system. You'll have to operate them separately. That means setting up the policy separately, monitoring events separately, responding to events separately, et cetera. Presumably over time, they'll get folded into panorama. But for now, uh, uh, Palo Alto is just sticking with the AWS management tools for that. Um, and here again, we have a language issue. Palo Alto is calling this a managed service. Uh, to me, that means there should be a SOC looking at your logs and events and responding <laughs> to incidents. That is not what this is. Yes. <laughs> when Palo Alto is calling it a managed service, they mean they're managing the infrastructure scaling, availability, and resiliency of the underlying infrastructure in AWS, not you. And that's not a managed service to me. No. And got to be so careful these days because they'll just, I think people just take random words and, and don't really think through a consistent naming schema. I I think it's just part of that, you know, marketing uh, 
impulse to blur the mm. what words actually mean so that you can sound like you're doing everything your competitors are doing <laughs> and I find it frustrating. Yes. And and somewhere along the line there's a discussion around SEO, you know, how do we, you know, manage firewall. <laughs> You know, right. it's, there's all sorts <laughs> yes. of weird reasons which went, you know, I'm sort of giving in at the end of the day. So <laughs> I, I'm not giving up yet. I, I, <laughs> I refuse to succumb, but <laughs> I think I, it's a losing battle. All right. All right. A quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Linode. You can cut your cloud bills in half with Linode's Linux virtual machines, develop, deploy, and scale your modern applications faster and easier. And whether you're developing a personal project or managing larger workloads, you deserve simple, affordable, and accessible cloud computing solutions. You can get started with on Linode today. You get $100 in free credit for listeners of Network Break. You can get all the details at linode.com slash networkbreak. They've got data centers all around the world with simple and consistent pricing, regardless of the location. You can choose the data center nearest to you. You also get 24 by 7 by 365 human support with no tiers or handoffs, regardless of your plan size. You can choose shared and dedicated compute instances, or you can use your $100 credit on S3-compatible object storage, managed Kubernetes, and more. If it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. Visit linode.com slash network break and click on the create free account button to get started to get that $100 in free credit. All right, moving on, uh, the British division of SunGuard Availability Services, they provide co-location and managed cloud services, gone into bankruptcy. The company cites the effects of COVID and rising power costs as the reason. Yeah, this was uh, something someone brought to my attention on Twitter. Thank you very much for the person who did that. I had previously flagged on Twitter just in a casual tweet saying, uh, you know, I wonder how quickly cloud prices will rise because of electricity. Obviously, electricity prices have been rising as oil and gas prices increase. Mm -hmm. But uh, obviously, the war in Ukraine and the impact of sanctions on Russia has seen another spike in oil prices and gas prices. And this is leading to price rises in electricity. And of course, data centers are major consumers of electricity. And yes. they're also static loads of huge amounts. So it's not like they can say, oh, we'll turn some of it off. Right? <laughs> right. Um, so it's been very interesting to sort of, now I, this is all speculation. I don't have any insight into you, but if you're a colo company and you're large enough, hopefully they've gone out and bought some hedging contracts to hedge their energy costs. So they would have mm -hmm. negotiated an energy supply agreement and subject to the contract that the energy company gave to them. And usually you can negotiate a six month or a 12 month and fix the pricing. But at some point those contracts are going to expire. And right. then if they didn't go into the financial markets and buy hedging contracts and say, like, if the electricity price doubles, we get to save, you know, some amount of money or we get mm -hmm. to have, there are ways to do financial instruments. And so I think we're going to start to see more colos go broke because they've got locked in contracts that they've given customers, you know, 12 months, 12 months of hosting on a fixed price of power. And as those contracts expire, I think you're going to see a number of colo companies get into distress around the world. And I also think um, when you start to look at AWS and Google, now they are in different situation because some of those really big clouds actually have their own power generation at some places. So they have mm -hmm. solar, they might have access to wind. They usually don't have enough to power the entire data center. Usually it's a, a way to sort of keep the data center running for a while. Mm -hmm. um, but it'll be interesting to see uh, what happens in the months ahead as the hedging contracts run out, as the electricity prices rise, and as... The supply agreements that fix, you know, where the power companies are selling power at a certain price, those contracts will expire and come into negotiation. And I think we're going to see a really big spike because it's my understanding that 40 to 60% of a data center's operational costs now is actually the power consumed mm -hmm. by the servers and by the cooling. So 
I could be wrong, but that's my general sense of it is it's somewhere between 40 to 60% of operating a cost is power and cooling now. So, yeah, so a couple of points on this. I, I read a story about it in the register related to SunGuard. Uh, the register notes that energy costs are currently five times higher in the UK now than they were last year. So obviously, yes, costs are going up. And SunGuard, I guess uh, the register got hold of a letter uh, among some of the executives that said they failed to pass those costs on to consumers quickly enough or their customers quickly enough. So yes, yeah. costs are going to go up for colos and other providers, and they're going to pass those costs on to you. So be prepared. Yeah, and maybe if you don't, haven't asked your colo provider or cloud provider what happens to your cloud pricing in the next 12 months if power costs remain high, then you should, <laughs> you know, are they hedged? Are they not? Like if you, even if you've got three-year reserved instances on Amazon, which is prepaid and at a fixed price, I don't think you're going to be in a happy place when they get changed, or at least Amazon's not going to be. So it'd be interesting to see what happens. Now, keep in mind, on-prem's got the same problem. You're paying more for your electricity as well. So right. I'm just talking about on-prem, off-prem cloud, it's all the same. Yes, we're all going to pay more. Mm. All right, moving on. HP, uh, not to be confused with HPE. HP is spending $1.7 billion to buy Poly. They make audio and video products for collaboration. So Poly, if you don't know, is the merger of Polycom, the maker of video conferencing solutions of old, back yeah. in the days when video conferencing was a thing on its own. <laughs> uh, yes, I remember those Polycom phones in the middle of a conference table that you would shout into. Yeah, the hand-free phones, the ones that you could yeah. yell into like you're in the middle of a bathroom. <laughs> Right. And they always sounded bad. Um, and it's also acquired a number of other companies in the space, notably Plantronics, which is the maker of headsets, telephony mm -hmm. headsets. Mm -hmm. um, so Poly has been quite thing. What it seems to me is that HP has sort of looked at what Apple's done with AirPods and microphones and screens and said, you know, there's a whole market here for accessories with the computers that we sell, the PCs and the laptops. For and sure. they've gone, you know, what we need to do is get better cameras and better microphones on these laptops. But instead of installing them in the laptop, we'll sell them as an accessory, as an upgrade. Yes. And I mean, frankly, this acquisition does seem reasonable in a work from anywhere environment where a decent headset and a camera can be very helpful when you're spending a lot of your time on remote voice and video calls. Mm. Now, I will note, I'm going to get onto my, my unicorn and ride it around a little bit here. I, st <laughs> I noticed that Polly is still promoting the use of hands-free devices. Please don't use them. They're awful. They always sound like you're talking in a public bathroom, like that echoey wall thing. Um, and so I want to remind you that the only way that you can do audio, and this is kind of what we do here at Packet Pushes, is that the microphone must be within five centimeters of your mouth to work correctly. That includes not yelling at your screen. I don't care if you've got an AI or some, you know, video conferencing box, which is supposed to have intelligent voice processing. It doesn't do a very good job at all. It makes it very hard for people to listen to you. It's very hard work to listen to people who just can't pick up the phone and talk to you. It's the same sound. And there is an exception here, right? Um, that while vendors claim their hands-free has mystical AI magic inside, I can assure you that it doesn't work. The only time you shouldn't see a microphone in your Zoom call is when somebody's got a boom microphone costing about $500 or more in a specially prepared boom. What I mean is it's got soundproofing all the way around to prevent reflected right. sound. And the yep. boom is actually pointed at them, probably running through a very expensive audio interface. That is the only exception. Otherwise, everybody should have a microphone within five centimeters of your mouth. Don't care what sort of microphone it is, as long as it's that. I'm going to make a plea for folks to just wear a headset with a little <laughs> microphone on a boom arm in front of your mouth. It's easy. Yeah. It's simple. It's got USB. It plugs right in. And I think the reason we've encountered this with folks who come onto the podcast as guests that hmm. they seem baffled that they need to have a headset. I think it's partly a vanity thing where they don't want to wear one because they think it makes it look like them, make them look like a call center operator or something. Hmm. The, the audio quality difference between yelling at your laptop and having a little microphone in front of your mouth is so huge 
that mm. your the people who have to listen to you every day on a call will thank you for getting just a simple headset and just wear it. Yeah, it's not that hard. Um, just alone, <laughs> yeah, please. You know, yeah. Let's all grow up and look professional, right? Right. Don't worry it's, about your vanity. Everybody's you know, wearing one. <laughs> you used to spend $300 to wear a suit to work or, you know, $100 on right. some nice clothes, you know, nice pair of pants and shoes to wear to work. Now it's a $50 headset. Please. Get a $50 you know. headset. Yes, yep. please. All right. Uh, moving on. Huawei recently announced that several of its data center switch lines earned common criteria evaluation assurance levels or EAL certifications. And EAL is a set of criteria meant to, according to Wikipedia, quote, provide higher confidence that the system's principal security features are reliably implemented, end quote. Now, this is one of these mystic things, Drew. If you know what EAL is, <laughs> and particularly you'll understand what EAL 4 plus means, it means that you can go into... Uh, high security, restricted access networks. These products mm -hmm. have, uh, the, the products that they submit are actually validated as not only being secure, but also the process that makes them is secure. So that is these products are ready to be trusted and meeting the EAL certification criteria and having a validation often means that they can only be used in certain ways or there has to be certain configurations or whatever. Um, it's quite painful to use, to run an EAL certified network, I promise you. Um, but it's a, I think it's a reminder to say that Huawei hasn't gone away. And just because we're not using Huawei in the USA or in Europe doesn't mean that there's not other parts of the world that are still looking to use Huawei. And now that they've met EAL 4 plus criteria, they can actually get into a bunch of high security networks. Um, and um, good for them because it's not easy to do. It takes a long time. It usually takes years. Um, and it does require an awful lot of work to validate and to be proved as being EAL certified. Yes, I think given the concerns around Huawei, you know, security, privacy, government compromise kinds of things, I can understand why Huawei would want to tout this kind of certification. Yeah. And I'm not going to make a commentary about, you know, <laughs> it's up to your government to decide whether Huawei is the right sort of thing. That's not me. Yeah. All right. We'll wrap up uh, with an update on uh, the Viasat attack. We discussed it in a previous episode where a satellite provider that provides broadband network uh, it was attacked that affected a bunch of users in Ukraine and across Europe. Uh, and now the company Viasat has released details about the incident. Uh, so in the press release, they say a ground-based attacker was able to exploit a misconfigured VPN appliance and get remote access to, quote, the trusted management segment of the KASAT network, end quote. And from there, the attacker moved laterally through the network to execute attacks that essentially wiped uh, key data in flash memory, so rendered the modems inoperable. Yeah, so lots of things here. Apparently, the Ukrainian military was heavily into, Kiyos, uh, into the CARSAT uh, network and a lot of it. And in the early days of the war, it was hamstrung because the CARSAT network was destroyed via cyber warfare. This has not been talked about a whole lot, and you sort of have to go into certain part, certain places to find this out. But apparently it was quite a blow for Ukraine in the first week until they recovered and were switched over to alternate communications networks. And of uh -huh. course, part of the Star Starlink uh, has been that's allowed them to rebuild a lot of the communications that was knocked out by Carsat. Now, Viasat has not covered themselves in glory here. They basically had no idea what to do. They came around and said, oh, we know something's wrong. And it wasn't until, you know, they denied everything. <laughs> they did everything Stand wrong, basically. Standard operating procedure. Mm. There's a no problem. Like, All right, there's a small right. problem. Okay, they got inside the network and yeah. killed 10,000 modems. And then it was like, oh, we've seen a few modems get, no, it was a few thousand. Now it's tens of thousands, basically just yes. about every single customer from Viasat using the Carsat network um, was actually a dual-pronged attack. Somebody pivoted inside, you know, presumably it was the Russians as part of a cyber attack. 
um, but the impact was substantial. Apparently, most of the modems were actually just inside the Ukrainian space or in that local area, at least at first. Uh, but maybe it, you know the attack just took off. We haven't seen a lot of cyber activity, you know, or related to Russia Ukraine leak outside of Ukraine or right, Russia. Right, not the amount we anticipated. Yeah, yeah, we might have thought more, but maybe that's something that's coming, or potentially, possibly the Russian, you know, cyber operations has been disrupted in some way that we don't understand. Maybe closing out, you know, shutting down the internet has disrupted access to various parts of their command and control. We don't know. There's lots of speculation and no certainty and nothing that I would bring to the show to sort of say, here, point my finger at this and give you some, you know, say, go and read this and see what you think. Um, but very bad thing for Viasat. They failed to secure their network at, and then they didn't handle the response at all well. Um, and even today, it looks like nobody's able to get it working because all the devices have been blown. Yeah, so uh, Viasat does say tens of thousands of modems were affected, but it does say the modems can be brought back online with a factory reset, and they claim they have not detected any tampering of software or firmware, and they have taken steps to mitigate future attacks, so they say. Yeah, and I mean, I guess the flip side here, this is a timely wake-up to all satellite networks that, you know, a lot of these companies have been tickling along in a lazy mode for the last 20, two decades. Mm -hmm. They're, you know, fairly comfy business, launch a satellite, you know, get some crappy modem running you know, 256K and call it done. And Starlink's come along and kind of disrupted the whole business model um, and changed a lot of us, got me thinking about how the integrity of these things, because CarSat is one satellite in a geosynchronous orbit located over Northern Europe. Right. And so you can just take it out, right? You can, <laughs> whereas Starlink is very different. They're talking uh, 1,500 satellites odd or so, around about that sort of number today, growing to 4,000. Very difficult for somebody to take out the Starlink network when it's complete. Today, it's still vulnerable, but um, we have seen some tweets from Elon Musk saying that he is now taking steps to protect the network from these types of attacks in the future. You know, just saying like, we know it's a problem or we know we need to do something. So that is potentially a, a good outcome from this in that the other satellite providers have woken up and might be reviewing their security. <laughs> Check the credentials on those VPN appliances, make sure they're not... <laughs> you know, the default settings. <laughs> All right, uh, links in the show notes if you want to read up on it yourself. That does wrap up the news portion of the show. Stick around for our sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Aurelian on disaggregated optical networks. That's coming right up. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we're talking about disaggregated optical networks and what they mean for both customers and carriers when it comes to issues like service delivery and cost. We're sponsored by Aurelian, and our guest is Sumita Gupta Sharma, head of network transmissions. Uh, Samita, welcome to the show. And for listeners who aren't familiar with Aurelian, they might be more familiar with its previous name. So can you tell us what that was and, and why the change? Yeah, we were Telia Carrier up till until last year. We were acquired by Polham Infra, which is the Swedish investment company backed by the largest Swedish public pension funds. So our network stretches over 70,000 kilometers across Europe, North America, Asia, we are connected in 125 countries. We've been the number one internet backbone provider since 2017. And to be honest, our customers account for 65% of all internet routes. Okay, so that's a little background on Aurelian, and you may have known them before as TLA Carrier, but they're now Aurelian providing backbone and internet connectivity service. Uh, so our main topic, I think, is uh, open and disaggregated optical networks. What, what are those? 
So traditionally, the end-to-end optical networks were closed and locked proprietary systems that were difficult to evolve. You would tend to be stuck with vendors with whom you deploy your line systems, and then they would be kind of proprietary client cards. So you'd be forced to fill the line system with their cards only. But thankfully, that's not the case any longer. Today, we have the freedom to choose, mix and match optical components best suited to our network. So that's the open, disaggregated optical networks we are moving towards. Okay, so like in the data center, when we talk about open networking, it's typically I can run, you know, a NOS that's separate from the underlying hardware. And it sounds like that's a similar thing going on for optical networks. Absolutely. There's a line system, which is the kind of the highway. And then you put on top of it, whatever cards you like. Now, the key here is that optical networks are high bandwidth. You're working on this high bandwidth infrastructure at the core of the internet. And the sorts of customers that you would do business with are the people who are looking for high-speed internet that's directly connected to the highest, the fastest and best points in the network backbone. That's the sort of target market for Aurelian. And that's why I think it is more important to optimize that because we are providers of raw bandwidth, right? We, I mean, we're coming out of pandemic, but we still continue to see 30 to 40% growth year on year. I mean, we are, at the same time, we are hit by global supply chain issues. So I think it was about time that we create not only supplier diversity, but also get the best buck for our money at the right time, which is really important. Mm. Yeah, I presume that this openness means because you have more selection among the cards you can use, that means, you know, price differential, uh, performance differentials, whatever, or supplier diversity. We can, you know, choose whatever is best in the market. I mean, we have small, disaggregated, modular building blocks. So, so I think different uh, suppliers have different roadmaps. So we don't need to stick with one supplier's roadmap. So that's that's also the benefit that because we can choose, the network is, is easier to maintain, faster to adapt, obviously cheaper mm. to operate. So it, it is uh, it is definitely the, the right way to go, I would say. Yeah, I, I liken this to sort of how taxi companies work back in the days when taxis were a fleet of cars. And they would pick one type of car and it was cost-effective, middle of the road, did the job, and sometimes it's optimized for the purpose. But having the ability to get it fixed using off-the-shelf parts, so by using a standard car, you can get third-party components, you can go back to the car maker for parts, the, the serviceability, there's also the operational angle. If you're just using the same optical all the way across the board, your operation simplifies out because everything starts to look the same. You start to just focus on high bandwidth, low latency. And that's actually what you want out of an internet connection. You don't want every packet to be lovingly counted and carried by angels from point A to point B, like the old MPLS. You just want as much bandwidth as you can get for for a fair price at the lowest latency. Yeah, of course, there is a slight uh, handoff here as well. When we're using one vendor, there's always the closest we can get to 100% spectral efficiency because I mean, that's one vendor. Hmm. With When we are introducing multiple vendors, there are tiny margins that we have to put in terms of utilization of the spectrum. So there might be, I mean, the utilization in terms of the spectral efficiency might be around 95%. But I think that really surpasses the benefits that we achieve from having this 
this diversity and this uh, this modular structure and to be really honest i mean not being held on hostage by a single vendor can be quite liberating too <laughs> so i mean i can understand the benefits for you as a carrier but what about customers why should they care I mean, customers, the services are deployed on the latest best performing platforms because we are choosing what is best in the market. So there's better service performance, there's faster delivery, obviously this cost effective. So it's a win-win for the customer as well. Mm. So does this mean, have you, are you engaging with the vendor community or independent organizations to sort of, uh, to push this notion of openness uh, in the optical networking space and the, in the equipment space? I mean, we've deployed the open line system, which means we can put any cards and more and more vendors, because it was inevitable, right? More and more vendors, if they want to continue to sell, they have to make their, uh, they have to accept openness, you know, and be in in this in this com- competitive space. Otherwise, if you're kind of locked in and still with that idea that they would like to have a closed system, they would like to have their own transponders onto the line system. I don't think, I mean, especially we would not support that. Every so we extensively expanding our network. We're building new routes in in you know different regions. And all of those networks are open. And that gives us great flexibility in terms of, you know, not only the speed of deployment, but also we are using best in the class components. Obviously, our, I mean, of, uh, and we are able to achieve the most cost effective bits per mile traveled. And when you're talking about backbone providers, as Aurelian is, this is a scale business. You invest hundreds of millions of dollars in long haul capacity. And digging that cable in the ground, setting up the landing stations, getting access from, you know, various IXPs and interconnections and all that sort of stuff. That's a scale business. And so really what you want to focus on is how do I get the business to operate at scale? How do I get the maximum bandwidth? But you also don't want to be buying these. Let me try and simplify this. You don't want your IXP or your backbone provider to be buying fancy optical equipment that's got transponders and it's got mystical magic to, you know, handcraft every signal across the backbone. What you want is something that just works stably, reliably and fast at a fair price. And that is why, you know, we've, we've been successfully running bandwidth over six, 600G or covering 2,000 kilometers. We've done trials on, on transatlantic ring. We can load 400G on transatlantic ring. So I think, I mean, we know that disaggregation and openness works and it works well. This is not something that most telcos talk about. They don't sit there and say, you know, we've got the best bet, the, we go for maximum bandwidth at a reasonable price. That's, what, that's our goal in life. And I just want to highlight how much of a transition this is from where we were to where we are now. This is a business that's focused on that one thing, whereas other telco providers go like, oh, we've got a bunch of custom services and we've got data centers and we've got costs and MPLS and blah, 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 blah. But they don't actually sell you the thing that you actually want. And this is a differentiator, I feel. More so recently, we've seen even large enterprises, you know, wholesale uh, bandwidth, of course, wholesale customers always were interested in in bits per mile. But what Mm. we've seen recently, even the large enterprise, you know, they're more concerned about buying 
uh, raw bandwidth as opposed, opposed to managed services. You know, their buying patterns are starting to imitate more of wholesale-like customers where buying wavelength and Ethernet is preferred rather than managed services like SDN because they would like to do the layer three stuff by themselves, what suits their enterprise, what suits their organization. So mm -hmm. what we've been saying that what was old is now new again because, I mean, these things, I mean, wavelength and Ethernet never goes out of fashion. <laughs> <laughs> You've mentioned um, bits per mile a couple of times. Is that sort of an internal metric that carriers use to talk about uh, the cost of delivering service or is that something that customers need to be thinking about? I think for both, because ultimately, uh, how much you can carry over what distance is dictated by the cost. So, I mean, if you can get the maximum out of bandwidth out of the dis maximum distance then it is a, it is a win-win for both customers and for for carriers so are there other things that uh aurelian's doing aside from uh, this open disaggregated optical yeah i mean we are quite bullish on the 400g zr coherent pluggable optics rollout which is the ip over dwdm we are trialing a 400g zr on a router that plugs directly into the dwdm filter and it completely eliminates the need for back-to-back -back transponders so this will be very soon rolled out in all our metro areas across our network now that's key because that means you can actually start eliminating whole subsets of technology where before you would have had a DWDM chassis and then you would have had a section of shelves associated with that. Now all of a sudden that's just being being disintermediated effectively. And I think uh, as we are reaching the Shannon's, everyone talks about Shannon's limit, right? I mean, how do we get more? when you can't increase, how do you, uh, you know, make it more cost effective when you can't increase the amount of bandwidth you can put on a wavelength. So, I mean, mm -hmm. the next step will anyways going to be, I mean, simplifying the network, collapsing the layer. That's right. And every piece of equipment that you can pull out simplifies the network, lowers the cost mm -hmm. and speeds it up at the same time. So, you know, the old ways of doing DWDM where the DWDM company would make all of the optical and then right at the end, they'd have an optical to Ethernet. And now we're seeing that just become part of the network. Part yeah, of the and it is it is simplifies, it's better management, you know, uh, it is uh, unified monitoring control planes. It is better for the environment, lower power consumption. Uh, so it it is uh, mm. inevitable to not adopt this. Are there challenges, though, for you in transitioning to IP over DWDM? Yes, they are. I must be honest here, but uh, I mean, the biggest challenge I would see, I would think is people challenge, you know, IP and optical domains have always run separately by separate groups of people mm -hmm. who have kind of independently taken decisions, sometimes suboptimally, as the vision is kind of tunneled because they're thinking of their smaller unit rather than the larger picture. So I think moving away from that culture, moving away from that structure is needed. And I think it is about time we do that and bring those two groups together. So if I'm going to translate what I think I heard you say, it's there are technical issues, but it's also sort of a uh, a domain issue or a silo issue within the organization for, you know, trying to collapse those, uh, the optical and the IP sides. Yeah. Yeah. It's a deep rooted siloed structure over years. 
So it'll take time to do that, but I think it's about time we do that. Silos persist everywhere, I guess. <laughs> yeah, things are what they are. It just takes time for everything to change. And, 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 but it, there, I think always what we had to do is wait for the, the telecoms industry to evolve and start to realize that focus on business is what wins customers at the end of the day. And the other way of service providers who used to be highly diversified like, you know, very divergent and doing a range of different things, that's kind of going away. Right. Well, this does uh, end our time. Sumita, thanks for being with us. If folks want to find out more about Aurelian, where would they go? You can find all the information about our network and our company at Aurelian.com. Okay, great. That's Aurelian.com, A-R-E-L-I-O-N, Aurelian.com. And we'll also have that link and others in the show notes that accompany this podcast. Uh, Samita, thank you for joining us and thanks to Aurelian for being a sponsor. And thanks to you for listening. If you like this episode, there are many more fine, free technical podcasts and our community blog. It's all at packetpushers.net. We've also got a lot of educational videos on YouTube. Check that out. Just search for Packet Pushers online. You can follow us on Twitter at Packet Pushers. Find us on LinkedIn and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough. <laughs>